0: Welcome to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She is the Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor Inwintosh Faculty of Social Work. This show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? This podcast is recorded on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Haudenosaunee, Anishinaabewaki, and the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. This land is covered by Treaty 13, signed with the Mississaugas of the Credit. Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. Listeners, I am really thrilled to introduce a fantastic guest we have
1: today, Dr. Stephanie Strathdee, who is the Associate Dean of Global Health Sciences and Harold Simon, Distinguished Professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine. Uh, She co-directs UCSD's new Center for Innovative Phage Applications and Therapeutics, Global Health Institute and the International Core of UCSD's Center for AIDS Research. She is an infectious disease epidemiologist. She has more than 600 peer-reviewed publications She's been awarded more than $64 million in grants. And what I'm really excited to talk to her about, among many things, is the memoir she co-authored, The Perfect Predator, A Scientist's Race to Save Her Husband from a Deadly Superbug, which discusses her efforts to obtain experimental bacteriophage therapy to save her husband from a life-threatening, multi-drug-resistant bacterial infection. That was a mouthful. So it's really lovely to have you on. Thanks so
2: much, Carmen. It's a pleasure.
1: And usually I say if I've met somebody and I know of you through our colleagues in Vancouver, uh, Dr. Kate Shannon and Shara Goldenberg, but also I just have been reading a lot of your work. I wonder um, if there's a time machine that is going to show up. Are you in San Diego right now? I am. So if there is a time machine, and I'm imagining that you don't have snow and it's quite warm where you are.
2: That's right. We actually have a Santa Ana on right now. So uh, we're looking at something like 70 degrees Fahrenheit. (laughs)
1: Uh, Yeah. So the time machine would just kind of pop on over and it's COVID safe time machine. And I would say, take me back or take the listeners back to a time and place where you you got interested in infectious diseases and in, in phage uh, therapy specifically the time machine is quite refined it can do multiple stopovers different locations you know do you want to tell us a little bit about
2: your journey well sure i guess if i was to get in a time machine right now and take me back about six years ago my husband and i we're both scientists, and we go on uh, you know, international trips, usually related to conferences, and then take a few personal days. And we were in Egypt, and my husband always wanted to see the Valley of the Kings. And so we had this wonderful vacation, and on the last night of our trip, we were on this cruise ship. We were the only ones on the ship because there had been a terrorist attack in Sharm el-Sheikh. And the next day, we thought that we'd be seeing King Tut's tomb. And unfortunately, my husband ended up getting what I thought was food poisoning. He was violently ill all night long, throwing up and just feeling miserable. And that was the beginning of a nine-month-long ordeal that almost cost his life. What happened was he didn't have food poisoning at all. He actually had a gallstone attack, and a gallstone had lodged itself in his common bile duct and caused a giant abscess to form the size of a small football. Well, that wasn't even the worst of things because inside this abscess, I moved in a superbug, which is a bacteria that's resistant to multiple um, you know, antibiotics. And so this superbug was what was uh, taking him down. So we were first medevaced to Germany and then back to home to San Diego, where we're both faculty at the University of California, San Diego. And my colleagues in the Department of Medicine ended up caring for him in the ICU and they didn't think he was going to make it. This is, he'd now been in the hospital several months and he was too weak for surgery because this superbug was resistant to all antibiotics by the time he got medevaced back home and they were getting interventional radiologists to put these catheters or drains in the abscess to try to siphon out the infected fluid with the hopes that the abscess would shrink and that his immune system would bounce back and unfortunately this infection kept spreading And now he was fully colonized and it was just awful. And so when the doctors told me that, you know, he wasn't going to make it, it was a shock because I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist and it felt like an organism that used to be considered wimpy, that I used to plate on my Petri dishes back at the University of Toronto when I was doing an undergraduate degree in microbiology in the 1980s. This organism, unfortunately, has become one of the worst superbugs on the planet to human health. And I thought, like, how could this be God's cruel joke that, like, you know, this little wimpy bacteria is now going to take my husband's life? Oh, it was just horrible um, just taking me back there. I had this conversation with my husband, Tom, and I asked him if he wanted to live. He was in a coma. I wasn't even sure if he could hear me, but I thought if I'm going to make decisions about whether or not to withhold life support then I need to see if he has an opinion about this. So I asked him if he wanted to live And I said, squeeze my hand and I'll leave no stone unturned. I'll try to find something to fight this thing. And lo and behold, it took a minute, but he squeezed my hand. And, you know, it was amazing. It was like an incredible moment. But then it it hit me like, I'm not a medical doctor. Like, how am I going to do better than some of the best infectious disease doctors in the world who have said that there's nothing else they can do? So I am a researcher. I know how to, you know, to find publications on scientific topics and I went home and I hit the internet and luckily within an hour I found this paper that mentioned alternative treatments for this particular superbug he had which is called Acinetobacter baumannii. Wow, that's that's a name. A, a real <laughs> mouthful. Took me a long time to learn how to pronounce that. And anyway, um one of them was was called phage therapy or bacteriophage therapy. Now that rang a bell. I knew that phages are viruses that have naturally evolved to attack bacteria. I learned that back in the 1980s when I was studying microbiology. It was like, you know, so I'm drawing on this, you know, 30 year old memory and I started to do more research on this. And what I didn't realize is that phage had been used to treat bacterial infections way back in the 1920s. And it turns out that phage had been discovered by a French-Canadian self-taught microbiologist named Félix de Harrell. Wow, Canada, and, Canada for Yes, go here. Canada. <laughs> and this is where, you know, the stigma, the angle first pops up. Because the thing is about Félix de Harrell is that he did not have a formal degree past high school. He was all self-taught. And he was obviously a genius. I mean, this guy, you know, he learned how to, to make liquor out of... Uh, um, um you know at gabby's and uh, he was you know studying all sorts of really interesting things and but he had this um, notion that this petri dish that he was looking at this one day it had bacterial colonies on it and so what what he was trying to do was find um something that was going to Attack locusts. It was a a locust plague in Mexico at the time. And he he learned that there was these uh, bacteria that could kill the locusts. And he was studying the bacteria. And he saw that there were some clear zones on the Petri dish where the bacteria weren't growing. And he put that in the back of his head, and much later, he when he saw this kind of phenomenon again, when he was studying children who had cholera in the, at the Pasteur Institute, he realized that the children that had recovered from cholera, when he filtered their poop and he added it to test tubes that had cholera in it, that it was killing the cholera bacteria. So he he thought, well, if he puts this through a Pasteur filter, it's, you know, filtering out all the bacteria. And if it's still killing the the bacteria, then whatever is killing it must be smaller than a bacterium. And so it must be a virus. And therefore it's a parasite of a virus. And so he called it bacteriophage, derived from the Greek meaning bacteria eater. Well, of course, like you couldn't see this, right? The light microscope was the only thing that was available back then. And so this is like 1917, and so when he put forward this hypothesis that these bacteriophage were viruses that attacked bacteria, he was scoffed because he was not a truly trained microbiologist. And he kind of was uh, taking on some Nobel laureates at the time. And they thought that what you know everybody was looking at must be an enzyme. But nevertheless, it was used um, to treat bacterial infections with success. And so even though this debate raged on as to whether or not these phage were viruses um, of bacteria or whether they were enzymes, there was a real heyday about phage therapy in the 1920s and 1930s, and Felix became famous. He inspired the um, award-winning book Aerosmith. And, um, and yet he was vilified by many scientists who just thought that this guy is egotistical, he's narcissistic, and he's not even trained. So that was the first la- layer of stigma around phage and phage therapy. It was really directed at, at Felix de Harel himself. But one of the other aspects of this is that viruses have kind of been on the outskirts of microbiology mm. in fact um some one of the leading experts so was one of the fathers of molecular biology gunther stent he said viruses are at the borderline of life and so you know so <laughs> They they do seem kind of scary, I mean, especially with COVID right now, right? Uh, well, exactly. So, so viruses got a bad rap. And of course, we've faced many pandemics. I mean, you know, I'm an AIDS researcher. And so mm. I always thought that the viruses are the bad guys. But when you're trying to kill a bacterial infection and there's no antibiotics that can work, then the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Mm. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> so so that but there is another element of stigma that that really did play a role in why phage therapy was forgotten um for for decades and that's because it was taken up very um exuberantly by the former soviet union and when penicillin came on the scene um, towards the end of world war ii uh it it wasn't readily available in parts of eastern europe and the soviet union and so they were using phage therapy in the, the the first phage therapy institute what is now known as the iliava center in uh, what is now Tbilisi, georgia was set up in like 1936 i believe and felix actually helped set it up and it had stalin's blessing um, stalin saw phage therapy as part of a socialized medicine experiment wow. and and so that in and of itself, cast a pall over the field of phage therapy. It was seen as Soviet science, Russian medicine, and the biographer of Felix deherel refers to the Russian taint, which um, really cast this cloud over phage therapy for decades. So it was seen as something bad and inferior, And Gunther Stent, again, played a role in uh, vilifying phage therapy and saying that it's done in out-of-the-way places by our enemies, you know. And so that that problem persists to this day. And when my husband, we ended up getting phage, matched to his bacterial isolate, and it saved his life. And the case became this watershed moment in the strange history of phage therapy that is described as bringing back phage therapy to the West. And so myself and my colleagues, especially Dr. Chip Schoolie, who oversaw the phage therapy protocol for my husband, Tom, we've been talking and uh, doing uh, podcasts and presentations all over the world. And initially we were hitting this big pushback. It's like, oh, Mm. isn't that only done in Russia? And isn't it like that inferior science? And so, you know, I really uh, have to hand it to the Russians and and the Poles who have had to endure this stigma for decades and still do. Uh, And they kind of smirk at us because they say, oh, well, now that an American says that this is great, now of course everybody wants to do it, but we've been doing this for decades. So
1: tell me what happened when you, so you said you ended up getting the phage. What was that process? I've read a little bit of what you've written. So I was so fascinated by how you, you read about this phage therapy. Yeah. Your husband was really sick. And then I guess because there has been no investment or, you know, really support behind it. Because of this idea, like, I always thought the, the stigma is so I'm learning so much from me, I thought it was because it was viruses, and people are afraid of viruses. I didn't realize like the history of the French Canadian and the Russian, oh, yeah. you know, I didn't realize that part. So I guess with the fact that there's been little investment made it more difficult for you to go about when you needed it at the this critical moment in, in um, your husband's life. How did you figure that out? Because you just read the book, and then what happened?
2: Well, <laughs> I'm yeah, I mean, I I found like publications on on you know Google Scholar and PubMed about about phage therapy, and asked um, Chip Schoolie, who was then the in, head of infectious diseases at UC San Diego, I said, could we get phage therapy to treat Tom? But by at this point, I realized that phage to be used as treatment was considered experimental in the West because the clinical mm. trials that needed to be done that showed that it's efficacious alongside antibiotics had not been done. And part of the reason was this mm. stigma that I I talked about um, because it was really forgotten in the West. Um, and so even though it's standard of care in the Republic of Georgia and in Poland and in some other countries, it's really considered experimental here. So, so it was a matter of first finding a physician and uh, you know, getting the support of, of um, UC San Diego's health system to say, yes, if you get get FDA approval To give this treatment on a compassionate basis we will allow it and you know i'm i really hand it to uc san diego and to dr schooley because that took a considerable amount of risk i mean obviously i had to sign a consent form saying that if my husband died that i was not going to hold them liable and Believe me, I helped design the consent form. Dr. Schooley sent me a draft and, and made a few edits because, you know, I'm a scientist. I do, do consent forms all the time, but, but this time I'm the one signing it. It's like, it was a total <laughs> weird experience. So, but first we had to find the phage and that was actually became a very overwhelming kind of proposition because it turns out that phage are the oldest and most populous organism on the planet. There's 10 million, trillion, trillion. Wow, That's uh, estimated like 10 to the power of 31. And they're, they're <laughs> like on the planet. They're, they're everywhere. They're in soil, they're in water, they're on our skin, they're in our guts. They actually are the gatekeepers that keep our microbiome balanced by, you know, um, controlling the turnover of bacteria they do that in the oceans as well um, but you have to find the right phage to kill the right bacteria so they attach to the bacterial cell through a receptor so they that bacterial cell has to have the receptor that they match to so some phage you know are very very specific in fact the kind that we needed for my husband's it had to match the bacterial isolate, so not just the genus and the species, but the isolate like Tom's acetobacter boomini. So that, um, you know, was like looking uh for a needle in a haystack or worse. Wow! So I went back to the internet, made a list of all the phage researchers I could find who were studying phage and the, the superbug that my husband had, and I wrote them cold and I said, Would you help? And luckily, one answered me back from Texas AM, Dr. Rye Young who had a few Acetobacter pomania phages, but said that he would enlist the help of phage researchers all over the planet and um, wow. to see if they had any phage that were already ca- characterized that they knew would attack this type of bacteria to see if any were matched. So we had like offers of phage from India, Switzerland, Belgium. I mean, um, Dr. Jean-Paul Pernet from uh, Brussels, who uh, now heads up a phage therapy program there, he offered us phage in a diplomatic pouch because he works at um, at a military hospital. So I mean, uh, outpouring of support for a total stranger was just so gratifying it really puts the word like kind in humankind you know that's amazing
1: that's like so amazing you just kind of discovered this and all these people are already working on it and willing to help you it's so beautiful
2: well and you know dr young said like some of us um have been you know, really outcasts within the scientific community because a lot of people don't think that there's any worth to phage. Um, In fact, another phage researcher, Dr. Carl Merrill, who we consulted when we found phage um, that Dr. Young's lab had identified, um, that was a match for Tom, we needed to figure out how we were going to dose him. And Dr. Carl Merrill, who worked as a phage researcher at the NIH for a while, his lab was shut down because by Tony Fauci, <laughs> um, who's everybody knows from COVID fame, but um, he's been the head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases for decades now. And he didn't think that there was any merit to phage therapy. So he uh, wow. shut, shut down Dr. Merrill's lab. And when we ended up um you know finding phage that were a match and dr schooley called the fda to get permission to give it to my husband on a compassionate basis the fda were the ones who put him in touch with the army and the navy because they had been studying phage as well and in fact the navy agreed to help and that was the team that dr carl merrill worked with and so we had two teams that were working simultaneously that found Phage that matched my husband's isolate, and we thought, well, the more the better because he's fully colonized with this bacteria. And if um, there's a hidden reservoir of bacteria that the phage don't reach because, say, we're only using, putting it through through the tubes in his abdomen, then um, you know the bacteria could become resistant very quickly. So we wanted multiple phage we didn't have time to sequence them or even know if they were hitting different receptors and turns out they were all very similar to one another but they did work and so from my very first email to Dr. Young to the first day that we had phage ready to give to my husband was only three weeks so compare that to an antibiotic that takes 10 to 15 years to develop and a price tag of a billion dollars or more right I mean it's just like no no comparison.
1: That's so I, I just am blown away by this story. And part of it is also not appreciating knowledge from other countries, too, right? or from different parts of the world, people's different political sides. like we're we're missing this valuable wisdom. and, an insight right
2: that yeah i'm so no no you're you're exactly right so first there was like there was real bias um against felix de harrel but then this geopolitical bias against you know soviet era science Mm -hmm. was was really pervasive and unfortunately you know a lot of scientists and physicians don't realize that they have implicit biases right and and it isn't Always, you know, against you know, underrepresented minorities or women or you know, or what have you. I mean, sometimes it's directed against people of a certain culture or or a certain region of the world based on history and, and war. And so it was a very complicated kind of situation. And to me, it was striking because if you look at bacteriophage. Um, you realize that they've played a really critical role in the advance of medicine and science since the since they were discovered. In fact, you know it was phage that were used to discover CRISPR-Cas gene editing, or phage display that has been used like you know for uh, any number of different scientific approaches. And it was phage that started the whole genetic engineering and cancer biology. So, and, and yet the application of phage as medicine, as therapy. That's what was forgotten in the West. And so we're just bringing this back now. And it's not a moment too soon because we've got this next pandemic. Um, it's already here. It's antimicrobial resistance. Um, mm-hmm. and it's It means that by the year 2050, 10 million people per year Or one person every three seconds is going to be dying from a superbug infection, and in fact it's worsened under COVID, so we really need um, solutions. We need more antibiotics, yes, but there's very few in the pipeline because Big Pharma has been getting out of the business of, of mm-hmm. developing antibiotics because they don't last very long. They're very expensive, and multi drug resistance is, is, a, is a reality. So, phage actually are synergistic with some antibiotics in, in um, some cases. So, we see phage as being a really important adjunct to antibiotic therapy. And it's now undergoing formal clinical trials. The NIH now is investing in phage for um, that's
1: great probably in a large part because of you and and the folks you're working with
2: well it's it's a it's a global village i mean i'm one person but i mean i have been on a pulpit and we wrote our book the perfect predator a scientist raised to save her husband from a deadly superbug it looks like it might become a movie um stay stay tuned on that
1: I'm going to have the link for the, the listeners with the podcast. So so they, I, I just got a copy. I'm really excited about it. And I'm recommending it to a book club I'm part of.
2: Oh, that's great. Oh, we do Zooms for book clubs all the time. And if you get the paperback version, there's a Q&A in the back. So it's good for classrooms, but it's good for book clubs. And if you don't have the paperback version, say you listen to the Audible version, which actually was a finalist for the, an Audi Award in the audiobooks. Um, wow! Yeah, that um, we have the uh, on our perfectpredator.com website under the resources tab. The discussion guide is also there, so it's all about Aww. spreading the word. And there's a lot more to the story. It's uh, it's it's pretty crazy. My husband's hallucinations are in the book as well, because his perspective about what was going on it was totally different. And I guess um, if he were here, he would say that that there's this, another level of stigma in our story, and and that's because you know people who are in the ICU and they are experiencing psychosis. Yes. He was looked at like he was really crazy and he mm-hmm. you know when when I asked him to squeeze my hand if he wanted to live he thought that he was a snake. I mean literally <laughs> Can you believe it? Uh, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I, I used to work in a psychiatric unit of a hospital, and I, you know, so I definitely know the stigma. And I worked with people living with schizophrenia as well, like just, just the stigma people have for having mental illness. Before we go to the last sort of question I have for you about this, I just wonder, because I think part of the reaction or the fear or, you know, wariness. Do you think it's because we're working with viruses? Like, do you think people think, oh, it could get out of control, or how do you trust this virus won't be harmful? Do you think there's some fear in the general public? You know, you're an expert in this, but even me, I'm like, oh, I wonder my feeling is that people are afraid of viruses. And so if we're starting to like use them, people might think, oh, well, what happens if you know they escape or you mutate or something?
2: Well, I expected to have a lot more pushback from patients about phage therapy because they're viruses and and the drug is alive so to speak. But I guess the public has been sensitized to this type of approach through probiotics mm. and fecal transplants and seeing that you know there has been a real shift over the last few decades to realize that all bacteria aren't bad, some are good bacteria and they are in our microbiomes and we need to nurture our microbiome and that antibiotics can be bad if you misuse them because it can kill the friendly bacteria in our microbiome. So that kind of, Mm -hmm. notion has really kind of sunk in to the general public in most cases. And so I've been surprised even people who are anti-vaxxers really like the notion of phage therapy. They see it as nature's green alternative to antibiotics. So I I do think that, you know, phage therapy is proven efficacious in clinical trials, as I expect it will, then there will need to be some branding that is done to educate people. But we're, we're using essentially a natural product that's already in the environment. Now, my view there are different teams around the world that are working on a variation of phage therapies using genetically modified phage or even synthetic phages the safety profile for those there's a higher bar because you know they could cause harm, and so you know more rigorous safety studies will need to be done based on those. and th- In fact, the first genetically modified phage to successfully be used to treat a human bacterial infection was reported on in 2019. A young girl with cystic fibrosis who'd had a double lung transplant and had a bacterial infection that was a cousin to tuberculosis called Mycobacterium obsessus. Um, we could only find, and when I say we, I mean this, again, a global village of phage researchers, This mostly at uh, this time at the University of Pittsburgh. They look- for a phage that was going to attack her bacteria and they could only find a certain kind that were the sleepy phages, or they're called temperate phages, instead of the phage rage kind that killed the bacterial cell that we want for phage therapy. Those phages were too relaxed. Yeah, they were, they were, they were too chill. So um, so um, Dr. Graham Hatful, whose lab was involved in this, they modified that phage by snipping out the repressor gene and forced the, the sleepy phage to become the phage rage kind. And so that was the first time that a genetically modified phage cocktail was ever um, used successfully in a human. And that uh, young girl Isabel is now a friend of mine. Um, she and I trade you know little gifts of funny cats and things like that. And she's she's doing you know okay. And uh, you know it's now she just turned twenty. So that case has ushered in this whole new era where genetically modified or synthetic phage could. All also be added to the repertoire of natural phage and that's gotten biotech and pharma very interested because it's easier to patent those kind of phage
1: this is amazing i'm so blown away is there anything you want um, the listeners to think about or to take another step and learn about maybe read your book or look at the website read something about phages
2: well, I guess I would a, a couple of things. So first, um, you know, our center is uh, the Center for Innovative Phage Applications and Therapeutics, so or IPATH for short. It's based at, San Die- at UC San Diego. It's a nonprofit. So if any of your listeners have a superbug infection, and they need help, they can contact us at ipath at Mm. ucsd.edu for a free consult. And we've helped a lot of people get phage therapy. And um, we're now starting clinical trials. Um, The first one funded by the NIH will start enrolling in 2022. So we're excited about that. I guess the other thing too is that my story and my husband's is really one of advocacy and so Mm. many people who've read our book who know someone in the hospital who is fighting COVID said that it really helps them learn about how to advocate for their loved one. Because, you know, I, I guess I was under this mistaken impression that, you know, you get your sick loved one to the hospital and then the doctors just fix it. Right. Like, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. but really, you know, you need to play an active role. You need to get educated. And I, and I had to learn all about like first of all, how did this organism become a superbug like, anyway? Like what, like where did this come from? Why is this happening? What kind of treatments are are being done, and the side effects, and you know, because you have to make decisions, sometimes life and death decisions. And if you are uneducated about it, then you're not, you know, in the best position to make decisions. And so, um, and when somebody tells you that something's futile, sometimes. Just sometimes when your back is up against the wall, you could make your own miracle. And that's that's what happened to us. I don't think that it was just me. I know that I had this great physician and this wonderful university hospital and then this whole network of phage researchers who were total strangers and All the planets lined up in order to save my husband's life and our family members and friends from across the world lit candles and prayers and sang songs and I mean it was just like incredible so so it it gives me a lot of hope for the future because we are um, facing, you know, this crisis, not just COVID, but with uh, climate change is also making the superbug crisis worse. And so we really need to collectively work together Mm -hmm. in order to ensure that we don't see this crisis virgin any bigger.
1: That is so, you just give so much wonderful things for the listeners to do. I'm going to have a link to your, your website, especially if people know somebody who's fighting a superbug, that's so great. And I'm so I'm so inspired by you. Before we ends, I'd like the listeners to get to know a little bit of the real you. Are you ready for some wild card questions?
2: Oh, okay, hit me.
1: All right. What are you binging on Netflix, Crave, Hulu, whatever your thing is that you're watching?
2: Well, my latest obsession is with yellow jackets.
1: Oh, I'm so um, afraid. Just looking, I, I I can't watch scary things. I look at the trailer and I'm like, I don't know how anybody can watch this. I can't believe you're watching that.
2: <laughs> wow, it, it's actually pretty fascinating. And you know, it's it's a psychological thriller. You know, it's something that it makes you really ponder. What would you do if you were you know stranded out in the wilderness? And how would you survive? And so you don't you don't realize what you can do until you're put into the situation. Because you know, some people tell me when they hear our story, "Oh, I could never have done what you've done." Well, you know, you don't know. Human beings are capable of, of incredible things. You know, I'm just grateful. This I'm sitting here staring at my husband right now. He's just come back from a three mile walk. He's healthy and happy. And before COVID, we were traveling again. So, I guess I would just end it by saying, you know. Miracles don't just happen. Miracles are made.
1: Yeah. Oh, they're awesome. I, you know, I was going to ask you the last question, which is a word of wisdom, but I think, I mean, maybe you have more, but the miracles don't just happen. Miracles are made. I'm going to write that on my whiteboard. I don't know. (laughs) And advocacy. I really like that you brought up advocacy.
2: Well, I learned a lot and my husband has too. And of course we had to get to know each other again after this experience because you know he spent most of his time, if he wasn't in a coma, he was like literally out of his mind. And when he told me, he thought that he was a snake and he had to try to squeeze my hand somehow. And he like took him a minute because he had to wrap his tail around my arm to squeeze it. It was just like, are you epping kidding me? (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, I think readers will enjoy uh, seeing two perspectives of, uh, you know, we went through the same ordeal, but we had different experiences. So I guess uh, there's lessons for everybody in that.
1: Thank you so much. I'm really grateful you, you took the time to speak with us today. And I can't wait to finish reading your book and also to share the link and your website with the listeners. Thank you so much for coming
2: today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me. Let's talk about stigma, hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. Join us again for more conversations with stigma experts from around the globe.